Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. It, it was those people that were getting into putting their ethnicity into the music who did not have the power to change the narrative, the story of the dominant group. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. I was recently flipping through a collection of old compact discs and DVDs and came across a treasure trove of folk and pagan-inspired metal albums. From violins, bagpipes, and hurdy-gurdies to throat singing, lutes, and horsehead fiddles, modern metal bands have found interesting ways of incorporating traditional instruments, folklore, and ritual into their music and performance. These sounds and lyrics are interwoven with a variety of sonic expressions of heavy music. Deities, such as Baphomet, appear on merchandise and album covers. We wanted to get to the genesis of when pagan and folk traditions, instruments, and lore overlapped with heavy metal. Joining us remotely in this exploration of paganism and metal music is Dina Weinstein, a professor of sociology at DePaul University in Chicago. Dina is a thought leader in heavy metal history. Her book, Heavy Metal, A Cultural Sociology, is considered foundational. She's been a rock critic, specializing in metal for 30 years, is widely read in both mainstream and academic publications, and is a frequent keynote speaker at events such as the World Metal Congress. Our conversation offers perspectives and historical context to the musical evolution of rock into metal and the political and social inflection points during the 70s, 80s, and 90s that introduced paganism into metal. How has heavy metal's culture changed over time in conjunction with its interactions with paganism? Does ethnicity and identity play a role? Is pagan metal an artistic response to power wielded by politicians and organized religion? Find out when we dive and get heavy. Dina Weinstein, welcome to Heavy Hops. A pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me here, looking over your topic today was an absolute joy. Excellent. Uh, for, for us as well. So I think when we're talking about paganism and metal and some of the other things that are going to come with this conversation, it's worth starting with some definitions or at least some kind of uh, some starting points for us. So let's look at paganism and universality. Would you like to uh, put some uh, some definitions behind these two terms as you see them? Yes, and, and please let me say that both of those terms are amazingly complicated, and together they're beautiful. I like complication. Um, number one, paganism, we can go into the origin of the term, but it was a term of disparagement. And it became something other than what the Roman history, the Christian history of it 
was in the ancient times. In medieval times, that is under Christianity in Western Europe, paganism was seen as a heresy, um, either heresy or stupid country people, you know, believing in, you know, witches and Black Sabbaths and uh, ghosts and all sorts of occult beliefs. Um, Christmas is a, one of the elements. I mean, it just was their original uh, religion before the Romans imposed um, Christianity on them. But paganism became something very different in the end of the uh, 18th century and throughout much of the 19th century as um, part of the culture and the high culture, not just of the not of the lower people, um, from Mary Shelley, um, who wrote Frankenstein, which is seen to be a Gothic novel, Gothic and, and paganism went together uh, to record Wagner and his operas, uh, all about Vikings. Thank you. Uh, paganism was avant-garde in a sense. Picasso indulged in it. Um, modern dance <laughs> indulged in it. It was a big thing. And then by the end of the... It, during World War II, it was no longer in fashion. We were fully into the modern world. And the romanticism that I spoke about in the 19th century was totally gone by this time, long gone, until it was resurrected in something that you may have heard of called the counterculture in the late 60s. And the counterculture was into spirituality, into other worlds, into, well, taking good trips in which you see things that um, scientists think don't exist. Uh, all of that stuff. And metal came out of the counterculture. And we can talk about, you know, metal later. But paganism is basically a term meaning non-Christian religious beliefs. What we see happens in metal is that it becomes the equivalent of a number of other things called folk metal, because it was the religion of the folks, not of the elite. Heritage metal, well, it's my people, that's what their beliefs. Heathen metal. Yeah, that's another term. Neo-pagan, that recognizes that it's not, you know, the original use of the term. Um, and then the specific heritages that it represents, the first pagan metal was Viking metal, which spread amazingly, and we can talk about that later, too. So that's pagan as a term. Universality, I believe, do you mean universal with regard to metal music? Yeah, exactly. 
Okay. I, I, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't. Uh, yeah. So before metal picked up on the pagan part, and they picked up at a most amazing time in our history that hasn't much been written about, but will be. And I'll mention in a moment. But metal was universal to start with. So if we consider metal starting with, oh, let me have Black Sabbath, but if you want Led Zeppelin, take them. Um, and until we get to the late 80s, metal was the same all over the place. They used the same instruments. They sang it in English. And the themes were, you know, not many. And it was perfectly fine for a metal band to sing about metal, you know, warriors from other lands like Led Zeppelin did. You know, the immigrant song is about the Vikings, and the, Jimmy Page was never a Viking, except in his dreams. <laughs> Man of War did a whole half album on the uh, Trojan War, you know, about the Greeks and, and the Persians, and, and did other ones too but that was perfectly okay because it was all the same so universality and pagan in with regard to metal seemed to be opposite however pagan metal <laughs> and I hate to be such a lecturer so please let in <laughs> pagan metal is both universal and particular because it's particular with its particular pagan religiosity heritage that it's talking about but it's still metal it has metal themes and it appeals to metal heads and most pagan metal take one or more metal subgenres. There's pagan black metal, of course. There's lots of and pagan um, death metal and pagan thrash metal, and a new style of maybe metal called folk metal. But pagan metal is like Christian metal. It deals with the theme of the lyrics and the titles, not with the style of the music. So it's metal music fused with the themes and often some instruments from the group that they're speaking about, and it usually is their own heritage, but not always. I mean, there's a wonderful band called Nile you know, from, I think, North Carolina or South Carolina, that is all into Egypt. The members aren't. And there are Chilean, well, the Chilean ones doing Viking medals may be the great-grandsons of some Nazis that went there. But in any case, <laughs> um, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, 
refers to the thematics. And pagan thematics could be just the religion, just the general culture, but like metal, it is never talking about today. It is always talking about some pre-modern past. And metal has always done that, but anybody who thinks seriously about metal, and damn, I have spent <laughs> way long thinking very seriously about it, it's always about the current era. It's the, the looking at the past, and historians will tell you that given histories come to be significant because it's a critique of the modern times. And so pagan metal grew up when the modern times was really crap. So let's kind of look at this origin of when paganism and metal begin to overlap. What was happening in the music and rock community that allowed for this overlap to happen? And what kinds of uh, social factors were going on, whether it be politically, culturally, that helped um, facilitate this connection between the two? And it's the most adorable connection I can think of. It only hit me about five years ago, this connection. And I've been writing about it ever since and thinking about it ever since. So we'll start, as you'd like, with the music part of it. In some sense, metal had always been pagan in in the sense of being into the occult, being into magic, being into um, Black Sabbath. Uh, you know, Satan was a big deal in metal forever. Um, and although... Christianity recognizes Satan, um, it was not their major theme. It was seen as anti-Christian. And so Venom's at War with Satan, which takes uh, Milton's Paradise Lost, which was a very pro-Christian poem, and reverses it, the outcome where Satan wins against God, um, is you know, just 1981 or maybe 82, you know, pure pagan. But pagan metal comes out around 91, 90. And you, we see elements of it in 89, too, but that era. So I want to talk what was going on with rock music and with metal in particular. With rock music, record labels were beginning to make a huge amount of money from CDs, which are much more lucrative than vinyl or cassettes. And metal, the name metal, <laughs> got screwed up by MTV. They called hard rock heavy metal. And the hard rock in the 80s, what metal people call hair metal, and now the people who like it call it hair metal, are, you know, like Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith. They 
they became gazillion sellers and in some sense <laughs> got the majors to sign up real metal bands, which was, you know, great for metal. And the, the, so there was a lot of money there. Secondly, the, there was a change going on in the music as the hair metal uh, got washed away by a new type of, mm, I wouldn't call it hard rock, but we, yeah, let's call it hard music. Um, Metallica's Black Album came out in 91 which I never thought was really metal, but, you know, it sold as that. For my money, Kill Em All was the best thing they ever made. And But that's, you know, my personal, not my academic or my intellectual judgment. And um, about uh, a month later, a band uh, called Nirvana it took hard rock and added some mm, post-punk to it, and it came out with a very glossy pop album called Nevermind. And so the music industry got on this whole kick, because the music industry only knows, they can't see the future, and they only choose what's a hit that they didn't see, and then they sign up bands just like it. Um, but, you know, that's the way they worked, and they worked themselves into the ground very nicely. I, I, I don't have any qualms with it. Speaking of the music industry and how they screwed up, uh, in 1990-91, the Internet became beginning to be user-friendly. I was using, quote-unquote, the Internet before then, and there was no browsers, <laughs> or there were verbal browsers, and the idea of having bookmarks um, never occurred to me, and lots of people didn't have them. It was it was not easy going, but by '91 we had computers that were beginning to be user friendly, and the internet that was beginning to be a collection and the idea of the internet was to be like wikipedia is where everybody contributed programs and information and put in data but then of course there was a lot of money to be made and that stopped stopped that but they started making more um user-friendly and expensive software and so that people would have to buy new iterations of their computers that are more powerful. And the software got so bloated that they couldn't distribute them on five or six floppies. They started making CDs to distribute them, and they made new computers with CD players. And little did they know that was the end of the music business because people could use their CDs to rip them. And, and uh, the, the MP3s came around. And God, there's so many cute stories. Um, 
the MP3s were only made possible by a big ex expensive investment by the movie industry to distribute their movies, not by mail, but over the internet. And they paid to computer programmers to make this program. One, one part was for the video, the other part was for the audio. <laughs> and somebody found them and separated them, and voila, we got MP3s by the end of the century. And, and the rest is history, as they say. So that was going on as well, and but in the interim, for metal, what was going on was we had fragmentation into different subgenres musically. Death was at its peak by 1990, although it hasn't. It's you know still a very vibrant living uh, subgenre. Thrash is still around, but it was sort of old hat, and and this newer metal um, was coming out that got the name black metal. That was sort of a combination of death and thrash and uh, various other things with a wonderful way of popularizing it. Um, so the idiots that uh, oh committed some murders um, in in Norway, and it's a you know really interesting issue that happened the murders in the early nineties. But it made all of the metal media, so the metal magazines, and the metal magazines was the major way that metalheads knew about new stuff and knew about their favorite artists. Whereas in rock, it was television and radio. So when television and radio switched to different styles of music, their fans you know, hair metal was sort of over. But real metal still continued because there were all of these magazines. And the magazines made a big deal about the, the murders in Norway and spread the word about what this new black metal was about. And so that popularized it greatly. And it's still, my God, the number of black metal bands around the world is enormous. So that was what's going on with rock. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Dina Weinstein in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra at the moment I want to share. Live music is back. The first Scorched Tundra Presents show is taking place on Saturday, September 4th at the Empty Bottle in Chicago, featuring In the Company of Serpents, Hive, and Roman Ring. You can find tickets at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation about paganism and heavy metal with Dina Weinstein. Just to just to recap some of that really quickly, uh, yeah. you're you're asserting that it was sort of 
the black metal scene in Norway and uh, the murders and the interest around it uh, and the underground media together was an inflection point for the combination of uh, paganism and the rolling of it into metal in some way because that was a part of the lyrical content uh, of some of those groups. Anyway, yep. But without what was the other part of your great question, what was going on in the world, it wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. So let's just look at this quote, great, it's my thing. I just love inflection points and the idea that I had lived through it and didn't, I sort of saw parts of it, but not as deeply as I see it now. Um, what was going on in the world then? So one, I mentioned the internet began, but that's not, wouldn't explain pagan metal. But other things were going on that is much closer to it. Um, metal has always been a critical, in a negative sense, about the current situation. And the current situation in a number of parts of the world um, got more perceptibly ugly. You know, what the heck do the Norwegians have to complain about? You know, they are immensely rich, have the highest standard of living in the world, have the least difference between the rich and the poor. There aren't poor people in, in, in Norway. What could they complain about? Well, they saw their Norwegianness being taken away from them by the European Union. By the end of the 80s, the European Union was set up. And Norway was one of the, you know, Western European countries that said, we don't want any part of it. And they felt that the European Union was going to get so strong that they couldn't resist it. So that was their little problem. Little, I say, but... Um, People don't like, you know, it was a very homogeneous group of people. They didn't have very many immigrants, and the few that they had um, <laughs> suffered greatly during the German invasion in, in World War II. So that was not it. And the inflection that happened was in Eastern Europe to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So if you want to look at where pagan metal just goes, is, is really in full flower, it is in, East, in the former Soviet states. Because here they had been part of the Soviet Union, having had their national identity stripped from them by communism, communism being a quote-unquote universal belief, and their national and ethnic origins were, and religion, which is one of the mainstays of keeping that ethnic identity, was taken away from them. 
So with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the question is, who the hell am I? Oh, I'm really Slovenian. I'm really this. And you could see all of the Soviet, uh, former Soviet countries like Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia split by ethnicity. So the ethnicities of the world were on the rise in this inflection point. And another term for pagan metal that's been used is ethnic metal. So that's an important understanding of how they came together. And then, you know, if you're going to look at when did pagan metal begin, you know, what was the first pagan metal band? And that's always a, a very funny question. Um, you know, the first, because the first is usually not the first. It's the one that the historians or whoever gets to write the history says is the first. Like, you know, what's the first heavy metal band? No, I, I think that the what the first was is always like a dubious discussion. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you brought up something very uh, interesting here with the collapse of the Soviet Union and a sort of uh, discovery, in some cases, rediscovery in others of, uh, you know, sub-state identities or ethnic identities, and in some cases, revitalized civic identities. And so... Uh, but, uh, you know, the framework that most of these p participants in this music scene were growing up in was like a highly bipolar world. Uh, do you think that that played a part in the sort of formulation of this connection between pagan and metal? You know, I think that's beautiful because in many, many ways, what you're calling bipolar, I think I would take a postmodernist like Derrida and say both and rather than either or mm -hmm. because metal is hyper hyper modern i mean the instruments require electricity although <laughs> please let me just insert this the band mayhem was where the mayhem of the killing was involved in in norway and they played their first gig in um Milwaukee at the Milwaukee Metal Fest. And of course, everybody you know, was there. Wow, 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 wow. They forgot to bring their um, electric, I forgot you call the piece that allows you it's to. It's like a power converter, from, right? Yeah, their electric converters <laughs> with them. So they played a whole acoustic set. <laughs> <laughs> And the whole audience were giggling because, you know, what else can you do except cry? Um, <laughs> but they were game. They, you know, good for them. <laughs> it wasn't good for us, but yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, the instruments that, that are used in metal, I mean, metal has got to be loud. You just can't, it's not folk music. Call it folk metal if you like, but if it's not, you know, it needs some power. So metal has always been, you know, looking backward, being very, very modern, up to date, you know, technologically. So I, I'm, I'm not, and 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 even worse, I want to take your your bipolar and going into my both and 
that a lot of people around the world, not in Western Europe or North America, but in what was called then the Second World and the Third World, got into metal because it meant they were part of the world community, that they were modern people in the world, that they were not just these backward peasants or tribal people. (laughs) So (laughs) they wanted it both ways, and I think that human beings generally want things both ways. So when we're still looking at this inflection point, what was going on in the 60s, um, the early to mid-60s, was the satanic panic. And a lot of that was brought about by the Manson murders and the... Oh, no. (laughs) It was the Manson murders were brought about by the counterculture itself, in which, please let me introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and fame. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, his Satanic Majesties, the Rolling Stones, were singing about Satan, and the whole um, evil was the other side of the hippie playfulness. Mm-hmm. And both were there at the same time. Uh, at, after all, there's a guy named Jimmy Page, who's the guitarist in uh, Led Zeppelin. And usually it's the guitarist who's the most um, superstitious person in the band. I'm writing a book now on rock bands in general, not just metal. And uh, all of the ones (laughs) that I've I've studied, I've found like three of them that were the same person in the band. Most all of them were really very superstitious. And uh, he even bought Alistair Crowley's home, Jimmy Page did, because he so believed in, and Alistair Crowley was the one who wrote the Satanic Bible, or what the heck is it? One of his books is called Magic, The Theory and Practice of Magic. I have it right here. And it's... uh, about black magic. And after all, Black Sabbath saw themselves as hippies. And to, they also saw themselves <laughs> as prog rock, but they were absolutely identified themselves as brummies from Birmingham, poor, very poor. Catholic believers at one time, a certain basis to wrote all of the great Black Sabbath songs, um, was going to be a priest. And it was um, the underside of the hippie hopefulness. And Ozzy at one point said that that's exactly what the band was about, showing the other side of the hippies you know, what the working class who came late to the party, you know, to, it, how their lives were experienced. And it was, you know, dark. Um, and so, and evil was part of the folklore of the area. So it was in metal, lifeblood. Uh, and some of 
<laughs> the metal people like Merciful Fate, who has, you know, sort of a power metal band from Denmark in the late uh, 70s, early 80s, come to the Sabbath, and, and their main guy was seen as a satanic believer. And I had the wonderful experience of interviewing him at some length in the early 90s, about two weeks, I'm trying to think, before or after, I interviewed a guy named Glenn Benton, who was the mastermind of a death metal band called Deicide. And Deicide is not a pro-Christian band with a name like that. <laughs> Definitely not. And, and and I had conversations with both of them about their be beliefs in Satan. And the guys from Merciful Fate finally admitted to me that, um, no, of course I don't believe Satan is real. It's a metaphor. Whereas the guy from Deicide... And I'm pretty sure he wasn't lying because he kept wanting to call me back and talk, well, whatever, um, was a true believer. It could have been in his commercial interest to say that, but I, I, I really think that I, I, I bought that line. And, and so, you know, in the 1950s, kids from the North would take trips to Gettysburg and Washington, D.C. on their uh, senior trips. And buying a, a, a Confederate flag was the thing to do because they were rebels and teenagers were rebellious. It, 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 they had no idea about what the Civil War was about. It wasn't particularly well taught in, in the schools. And... Um, so that's uh, being rebellious was part of um, the modern world where each generation needed to sort of break away from the parental beliefs because the world was changing. Today, we're seeing a resurgence of rebellion, but in the name of ethnicity and Race Do you think that the satanic panic uh, had a long-lasting impact on the evolution of uh, of pagan it metal? It was made for it. It was made for it because. So let's look at this. There was a satanic panic, several panics in the seventies in the United States. The United States is one of the most believing Christian countries in the post-industrial West. But there was a, say, several satanic panics in the 70s and in the 80s. It sort of calmed down since then, although Marilyn Manson was uh, seen as, you know, getting these guys to, you know, kill people in Colorado. Um, it's always around because people were believers um, it, it was the reason why um, 
little Richard stopped being a rock and roller and became a preacher because he didn't want to go to hell where Satan was going to blah, blah. You know, this is, it's constant. The United States is not the only place of satanic beliefs. All of the religions that are based on the punishment of hell, the more fundamentalist religions, particularly, stress Satan being around all the time. So in some way, the satanic panic became uh, an opportunity for groups to clump together countercultural movements uh, and create you. a target for them and censor them or buy their records and burn them in uh, <laughs> oddly ritualistic piles? Yes, yes. And if I was had a gold star, I would give you one. <laughs> that, is, that is brilliant and perfectly put. And it, it's interesting to see those metalheads who had gone to religious schools who told us about that they were required to burn their albums. Of course, the EPA doesn't allow burning albums any longer. <laughs> But, but, you know, that was one of the things that they did. And so in the 80s, the uh, group of these women who, um, God, senators' wives who had power and who wanted to get them reelected started the PMRC and they got hearings in Congress because they were well connected thank you and they convinced the media and the PTA that heavy metal and a couple of other songs because they only knew about music from walking through the living room when MTV was on were going to um, convert kids to Satanism. And their list of songs were hysterical. You know, <laughs> like what, there's a band called Wasp that has a song called um, Fuck Like a Beast. And they said it's preaching bestiality, sexual bestiality. <laughs> They never understood what a metaphor was. They learned to read the Bible literally, and they read everything else literally, too. Um, and they convinced the whole country, I mean, the mainstream, and it was because of them, and I have to thank them enormously, that I wrote that book. Because I, there was just one incident that, I just couldn't believe they let happen. Parents were paying these for-profit psychiatric centers to demetalize their kids. They had them not only break their albums and um, get rid of their posters, but they cut their hair short, mainly guys, and indoctrinate them about the evils of this music. 
And I'm thinking, I wouldn't have liked that myself at all. This is inhumane. This is this is awful. And and so when somebody asked me to write a book for a series he was doing, uh, I wasn't interested in the series on social problems. But here was my chance to get a book published without having to, you know, jump up and down and spit wooden nickels. So I asked him, I said, do you think that heavy metal is a is a social problem? He says, of course it is. Now, this was a social theorist who knew my work because I'm basically a sociological theorist. You know, I've written on social philosophy, on Nietzsche and whatever. And... Um, he said, yes. I said, would you take a book of that? Oh, but of course. Thank you, Dina. So that's how I got to write that book. And I have a whole chapter on the, or a half chapter on the PMRC, and then another half chapter on the mainstream uh, rock critics who also needed heavy metal to be the mm, punching bag against which good rock would be judged. So... It, it, it was very, very cute, but that whole satanic evil, you know, what do we mean by evil? And satanic is another name for it. Another song on their list was <laughs> ACDC's Highway to Hell, telling kids they should, you know, go down the highway to hell. To, they meant it, <laughs> the, the PMSC thought it was a literal invitation. If they listen to any other uh, ACDC songs, they'd know it's about sex, not <laughs> nothing religious, unless you consider sex to be religious. Yeah. Mm. It, it is funny when you think about a group who bases a lot of their beliefs off of a savior who spoke in parables, uh, and they can't find a metaphor. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> oh, I like that. I have to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, yeah, also like a high level of irony of the timing. And I think it's something we may talk about in a little bit, but with the evangelical community finding its political voice at that time, right. uh, ironically, the things that Democrat, that some of these uh, women you were referring to who are also uh, affiliated with the Democratic Party mm-hmm. uh, played right into. Oh, everybody did. <laughs> yeah. But, but <laughs> you made one error about the Bible. You did not read the last chapter. Oh, everyone book, likes to avoid that one. The book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. There is no irony there at all. The book of Revelation is the one that the fundamentalists take. This is where the whole left behind movement is from. It, this is, no, you can't. <laughs> there's nothing poetic. I mean, the rest of the Bible, of all of the Bible, there's wisdom in it. The Book of Revelation is um, not so much wisdom, and uh, it's a scary story about how um, you're going to be punished if you don't shape up immediately. Mm-hmm. And the punishment is not in this life and the, the the good is not in this life this life is nothing mm-hmm. right. which the rest of the, the Bible 
doesn't come out and say that. Yeah, it's very much alluded to, I think, in a few of the later passages, but it's it's all laid to bear in the book of Revelations. And I yeah. I think, um, you know, if you want to look at it, like Alexi had said, a lot of this um, neo-evangelical movement that was happening in the 80s due to the Reaganism and Reagan in office, it's really just, it's the cycle that's feeding this fear of metal music and so uh, but, but Sam please let me interrupt you because <laughs> you, you you know you you're a great person to converse with because you see it and I just want to give you my objection Throw it I at mean me. you're right but the, <laughs> throw but the book Reagan at him yeah. was only, <laughs> Reagan was only president because of the evangelical Christian getting behind the Republican Party. They had been apolitical before the mid-70s. It was the so-called counterculture that started them to become political, and they were the power behind Reagan. Reagan had been a Democrat, a Hollywood person. He was not <laughs> evangelical by any stretch of the imagination. By the time he was president, he was fairly... Uh, um, in his uh, dotage, but but it was their power, and so they had power in government because they got him elected. While we're uh, on the topic of that sort of time frame of the 70s and 80s, I wanted to yeah. jump into one more sort of uh, current that was occurring in the like uh, mainstream world of rock music, and that was the progressive rock movement, which was, is a very interesting movement to look at as far as the integration of folk, uh, folk lyricism, folk themes, the ridiculous outfits on stage, <laughs> the theatrics of it. And in some uh, cases, the, in, in some cases, yeah, just yeah, kind yeah, of the, yeah. the strange paradox that this is in the case of some groups like Gentle Giant, this is music that was intentionally made to not be enjoyed by a lot of people, <laughs> but at the same time, they're getting huge budgets for these shows and opening for Black Sabbath on U.S. tours. So I guess, like, the where I wanted to go with this is, like, is the... I love, I love it. I love it. I love it. I think they have and the I same manager, too. On it. Um, like, I, I, I'm curious about the folding in of these sorts of influences into genres. So when we look at like uh, progressive music folding in uh, folk music and also like there was a lot of 80s fashion in the in what people were wearing and in the theatrics, but there was a folk tinge to a lot of the stuff that was coming from Britain. Um, is yeah. how metal... Okay, so you've got all the pieces, yeah. and, and I want to make my puzzle of it and see if it looks anything like you would have put together. Yeah, um, go for it. The origins of, of, of what we can call prog rock, also called art rock, definitely in Britain, and was a class movement. It was the upper-middle class, well-educated people who said, we want to get into this rock stuff, too. So I can start with Pink Floyd, but, you know, start with any of them. They were into experimental. 
they were and and then the whole folk that in England has always been really really strong i mean simply as part of the english character america never looked back we have no idea that's why i don't teach history in the united states we only teach the future um if we teach anything <laughs> Yeah. Well, but you understand what I yeah, mean, especially yeah. compared to Britain. So the Brits have been steeped in their local folk culture, and the parts of Britain have their own folk culture, and the more northern it is, the more steeped they are for a variety of reasons. And the prog rock comes not exactly from the north, but from the college-educated people. And so if you look at Pink Floyd, they were well-brought-up young men. And yeah, they were taking drugs, but they were not uh, hyper-alcohol drugs, and they were taking drugs to expand your mind. And so the there's a whole group of prog rock that was into mind expansion. Um, a band called Hawkwind, they threw out, when, when Lemmy joined them, they threw him out because he got caught at the Canadian border with the wrong drug. They were taking LSD and, L, and, and Lemmy liked speed. Um, and they thought they had caught him. They didn't catch him with anything terrible, so they had to let him go. But <laughs> Hawkwind fired him because it ruined their image. The the prog rock people were trained in classical music as kids and could be appreciated by other people who were classically trained. Um, I don't think Ozzy's house could even fit a piano, let alone have money for piano lessons. It was a... Britain in the 60s and 70s was so thick with class bias, you could cut it with a knife. And so what became prog rock... And let me just tell you about a band that's on the other side of the pond a band called Rush that is very much influenced by prog rock and is seen as that, but is very much influenced by heavy metal, especially Led Zeppelin kind of metal. And their lyrics are very prog rocky lyrics. They are well-educated um, young men. And not out for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So the prog rock crowd, including those who make it, had a different um, mindset. And if you look at the people who go to see prog rock metal bands, um, because I know the Chicago people who were at those things and they were all 
good college students, not just, you know, everybody goes to college these days, but these were really well-educated college students. At the museum in Birmingham, they showed uh, build flyers for upcoming concerts. And in 1970, and I think 71, but in 70, Black Sabbath was opening for Yes. By the time they came to the United States, Black Sabbath was more popular than Yes in the United States. That's interesting. I, I, yeah, that is, uh, that, uh, I think that it is one of these things where, um, you're right about thinking, I totally concur in the sense that thinking man's metal is something that has a, a limited audience and there's like access issues both on the part of the people that are creating it. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, there is uh, access issues with the consumption of it as well, uh, I guess, depending on how you how we interpret appreciation. But I mean, it, but yeah, it, yeah, 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 but that's exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the audience for metal in the United States, loads of them are musicians. Mm-hmm. And they can appreciate music as such in a very intellectual way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, it, the theme, but the thematics is a different story. So prog rock um, has both uh, a more interesting and classical music, you, you know, like ELP played, or even Rainbow. Rainbow was started by a Deep Purple guitarist, uh, Richie Blackmore. And on one of the albums, he played the... Um, uh, 16th century green sleeves, and that's what he labeled it as. Now, it came from them, but he wanted to make sure that everybody knew that this is from the real Britain. He wants the six, and then he left the uh, rainbow and worked in medieval fairs for decades. So the medieval is 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 a living history in Britain. That's never in the United States. Mm-hmm. But but um, the prog rock part, it seems to me, is both the musicianship alone, or the lyrics alone, or both. And I think Rush puts both of them together um what is it, the twenty-one twelve? the whole side of their album, is a six- or seven-part song cycle that takes a story that was written by Ayn Rand, her first published work, I think, who basically redid Plato. And what, what Rush did was put it on... Um, a freedom scale rather than a power scale that I, Ayn Rand had it on. You know, and, and it's it's clever, but how many people grasp it? I actually did research on whether people <laughs> waiting online before there was, you can get <laughs> tickets by, uh, on, on the internet, before the internet, you had to go to the box office. 
when tickets went on sale. So at the Horizon, they had, uh, I wanted to get good tickets to rush to pay back some friends who got me good tickets to a Black Sabbath show. So I got there the night before. My husband left me off there. And I didn't know anybody, but, you know, I'm not shy. And I was speaking to people around, and finally somebody comes from further up the line and said, oh, are you the person who knows all about 2112? And I'm thinking, well, I was talking about that. I, I use that in my theory class. And um, people kept coming up to me all night long. And, and by about 11 o'clock at night, I'd been there since 7, I started counting. I would just ask people one question. Are you familiar with 2112? Everybody on that line not only knew the songs, but could recite the lyrics. I certainly couldn't. And I said, I have one question. It's about a battle between the priests of the Temple of Syrinx and this guy who finds a stringed instrument behind the waterfall. Who, on which side is Rush? On the priest's side or on the guy who finds the stringed instrument? And they kept saying, it's a guitar. I said, yeah, I'm sure it's a guitar, but that's not the lyrics. And so I counted the percent of kids who got it wrong, 72 point something percent. Now, these are ardent Rush fans. But American audience Rush fans, they don't read the lyrics seriously. The music is just like Springsteen's Born in the USA or, um, heck, the band's version of The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Lots of other songs. It, it, it takes two sides. The chorus is one and the verses are another. And the chorus is the rousing part. But in most cases, that's not the part that the uh, writer of the song agrees with. So they they got it wrong because the music for the priest who smashed the guy's guitar because he wants to make his own music, that's the rousing part. When the guitar guy is singing his part, it's very, very low-key and just sometimes only the guitar. So... Um, what it is people get out of the music really differs enormously to the, you know, the fans and the fan base and what the fan base thinks they should know. And, and with metal, it's almost always been the music and what pagan metal did is introduce something else that was missing in death metal and thrash metal. Death metal and thrash metal got rid of the costumes that Iron Maiden and, and, and Floyd, not Floyd, <laughs> Black Sabbath, but especially um, Judas Priest were wearing, you know, the, the, the speed metal and just traditional metal or what Manowar was wearing, you know, had all this leather costumes. Um, thrash metal got rid of that and death metal kept it off when pagan metal comes in we have visuals 
and that was another huge appeal. The pagan metal, what were they going to wear? They couldn't wear just the leather. So they got the face paint, and then, because, and then they got the folk look of, of wearing skins rather than quote-unquote black leather, and, and also introducing instruments that were not universal metal instruments, but particular ones from the, quote, folk heritage. On the topic of uh, ethnicity and pagan metal, um, if metal, if we're viewing metal as a sort of universalistic music expression, are pagan and ethnic interchangeable in this conversation, or is pagan sort of pre-ethnic as we, as one could think of it. I, I gotta t- say that it's a brilliant combination of opposites of being universal and very particular ethnic because, and look at one of the reasons of why it develops. It's a formula that's very easy to do. If you came, I mean, <laughs> after all, I don't know if you're familiar with Sepultura's roots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But if they were really going to do a roots thing, they would talk about the Nazis because, you know, the fascists and the Nazis, the fascists are basically where their parents come from. However, here they do a northern Brazilian, which is gazillion miles away from where they were born and lived, um, tribal group. It's as if you were going to do a song about the Ojibwa Indians. Same country they're living in, but, you know, what does it have to do with you? Well, it, so the, Ethnic is not merely the ethnic, it is the ancientness of the ethnic. It's all pre-modern. And what they remember about their ethnicity is the history that took place in large part before the modern era. So if you are, for example, Jewish, what's the big holiday? You know, when you got out of the Egyptian captivity, why would you celebrate? I mean, what's going on? Or when you were put into captivity and, you know, all of these holidays are about ancient history. And the ancient goes along with metal, but it also goes along with being an authentic. So we're looking for an identity that's, you know, I'm a professor. I'm a metalhead. That's not a real identity, according to people. Of course, I could change it, but you can't change your ethnicity. So ethnic identity starts coming to be important at a time when all our other identities are up for grabs. And what's going on in the United States that we call racial is far more ethnic than racial. And it is for the same reason. 
the the society and culture have been changing so rapidly that people don't know who the hell they are. Mm-hmm. And we don't trust that anyone is what they claim to be. And ethnicity is something you can trust because it's ancient. And for metal, that works well, too. Now, I didn't fully answer, so just tease out what I left out of your question. Uh, no, I think you, you did pretty well. I just, mm-hmm. uh, like, because, and this may be more of a like a civic idea, too, but uh, there's a... Uh, an academic I studied named Benedict Anderson who referred to nations yes. as imagined communities. And so they are, and I think, you know, where he kind of went with that. And so, um, <laughs> ethnic, oh, but please, I, let me just get, tell everybody because it is it's probably one of the most important things people ought to know and absolutely don't. I mean, just think about what the United States would be today if everybody accepted Benedict Anderson's view. I do, by the way. Mm-hmm. That ethnicity is a construct. It is a history that is a story, as all history is. You take some elements that may have been true, you take other elements that couldn't possibly be known, and you put this element with that, and you see it in this wondrous, wonderful light, and that's your ethnicity. So it's a construct. So, um, you know, what's going on now with, you know, finding out about what the, the Canadians did to the Indians in the school. Well, we knew about that 50 years ago, more, but the history wasn't relevant then. So we bring out these constructs constructs that we call ethnicity, it's a particular history, and when it's needed. And so the question of why ethnicity is rising, and it began, it it had been in the United States because we had so many immigrants, but World War II almost erased ethnicity. And it wasn't until the the whole racial thing came to the fore in the 50s, but in, in this, the, the counterculture sort of broke up the myth that the United States were one people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And by the 70s, there was a whole ethnic revival in the United States. And so we had ethnic groups contacting, people contacting one another simply because that they share the same ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Which, is, uh, which is interesting because if you, take the, if you take part of the view of Anderson and of this uh, imagined community, uh, yeah. These are power structures as well, right? These are uh, different um, components of uh, of history that are put together uh, and promulgated in a way to keep a nation of people that are very different together. 
And I'm so it's, it's uh, totally, and it's not only power structures, it's a way of keeping the others, like immigrants, those awful people that ruin your country, away. They are not. And and we hear our politicians today saying something that I, I just giggle at. That's not really us. Americans wouldn't do that. Just what, of course, we have done, like bomb Syria to smithereens and, and, and Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. That's not us. Mm-hmm. That is, that story we've told ourselves about ourselves didn't include this. So please, this isn't us. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so with uh, tying this into the, um, the idea of sort of pagan metal coming about in the 90s, um, and you also pointed out that this was a, uh, you know, when the lid got blown off of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. uh, and all of these other uh, sorts of uh, power power groups that uh, allowed substate actors new breathing room. Um, was this sort of a time where like ethnicity and paganism became sort of different things because then you have people communicating state ideas Mm -hmm. through metal versus pagan ideas that are pre-ethnic. Oh, oh, beautiful. And I love the term sub-state because the pagan metal began as protest movements. It needs to be read into it, but you're giving a reading of it. These were mainly in the 90s groups that were being marginalized by the power history story of their era. So with the EU in the 90s getting more and more control over things, the sub-states started to get a lot more power and said, hey, Madrid, we're not Madrianos, we're Catalans. We speak a different language, and you won't even let us speak our language. We want to break away. Oh, says Scotland, we are not... And so you had all of these disgruntled, quote-unquote, not really minorities, but what you're calling sub-states, but after all, nation-states, was a new idea that only came into being in the 15th century. Um, and it's not working out well at all. And so all over the world, nation states are fragmenting into quote-unquote ethnicities. And so there's a good reason for pagan metal. Um, An example, there's a very wealthy little state called Singapore that's located on the top of where Malaysia is. And they are mainly Chinese, and they have have imported um, Malay workers from a neighboring state, uh, but not, not a large percent, and a smaller percent of Indians from the subcontinent. And the Indians are the lowest of the low and are treated, you know, really disgustingly. And so there's a pagan metal band that started 
maybe at the early part of this century or maybe in the 90s, I, I forgot which, called Rudra, that is all about the ancient Indian religious Hindu text, the Mahabharata, Bharata, the Mahabharata, I don't know how to pronounce it. And they sing their songs in um, Hindi, and it turns out that they got a record deal. The records sell well in India, and certainly amongst the the Hindus living in Singapore. So it works. It it was those people that were getting into putting their ethnicity into the music who did not have the power to change the narrative, the story of the dominant group. And so that becomes a political expression uh, yes. rooted in history. Yep, 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 yep. Now, you don't have to read it that way. You can read it as, hey, it's just metal, or it's just pagan metal. You know, you got to have... And what's so cute about it is that it's such a grand formula, as I said, to take your uh, ethnic background that you don't know anything about, but you could research. And, you know, so people have done this from marginalized places like the Faroese Islands, where one of the early and best-known pagan metal bands, Tyre, comes from, T-Y-R. And they sing songs in Faroese. Now, the number of people who speak Faroese is infinitesimally small. But that's not the point. It's also exotic to metalheads. Mm -hmm. The music you can understand as music, grand music, very good music. And the guy in charge of it seems earnest, and we now know, you know, he put the Faroese Islands on the map. But it was it sells around the world because of its exoticism, and it's authentic. He's not making up some image, but authentic in quotation marks. What Always. what role do you think escapism plays in all of this when we're talking about uh, small languages and uh, people living in very modern societies uh, evoking very different times? Oh, oh, you know, that's a loaded word, escapism. I'm serious. You're just an escapist. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, you can't. You can't have it. I, I can't use that word. It's just as bad as authentic. Um. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, you, if you've got a, if you've got something better that can fuel my <laughs> vocabulary for the future, I'm all ears. But, no, seriously, try the both hand. Uh huh. Because couldn't something be both an escape and serious for you at the same time? Absolutely. I, I think that fuels a question I have is kind of revolving around heavy metal and paganism and how 
one has changed the perception of the other. Ah. Oh, you mean how pagan metal or paganism has changed the view of... Ah, it, it has in a lot of ways. Um, it's taken the piss out of the critics of metal because, you know, if, if you're a good person in today's society, you never criticize somebody else's ethnicity. So that's number one. And number two, it also shows that metal is really global and putting it down the way people used to. It's the only genre of rock that's growing like mad all over the world. Right now, I think the major place where there's more metal bands than ever, Southeast Asia is doing well, but nothing's comparing to um, the uh, Pacific coast of uh, South America. It's just exploding all over the place. And and they are singing not only in ancient languages the way Primordial from Ireland does, or some of the uh, black metal bands from Scandinavia singing in Old Norse, which is the basic language of Swedish and Norwegian, and you know, nothing's a basic language of Finnish, uh, but of Denmark, too. And it's... Um, they're also naming their albums and singing in the everyday language. So there are Greek pagan metal bands singing in modern Greek, although some of them are singing in ancient Greek. And they're dealing with um, the um, key historical figures of their ethnicity, not of their political state but their ethnicity so <laughs> El Cid in Spain there's lots of bands who have written about El Cid as the great conqueror well what did he conquer he, he got rid of the Moors the Islamic people that brought all of the wisdom of the ancient uh, Greeks and Romans into Europe but um you know, you had to convert to Christianity or else you'd get burned at the stake. There were people who were not into that state, like the Catalans and the Basques, who don't write about that. They write about their own local heroes. So it's, it's politics. By, you know how they say how, how uh, what we call soccer, you know, football is, is war by another means. I think that metal is war by another means, too. Yeah. And so with this very close tie between paganism and ethnicity, when bands use pagan imagery to add shock value or sell merchandise to their brand, and these members themselves don't necessarily consider themselves tied to that belief or that ethnicity, how does that diminish the value of paganism? Um, 
generally, they don't admit that publicly. Mm -hmm. There usually is at least one or two members that are seriously into this. And it gives you a lot of stature amongst where you live to be seriously into the ethnicity of those people. The United States, because we don't have an ethnic group, it's weird. It's always weird. Um, you know, I remember you know, Ted Nugent did things about the great white buffalo and the whole Indians, and Manowar did a thing on, on the American Indians. And I thought that was nice of them, because both of them liked bow hunting. Um, whereas if they were really descended from that and they told you so, you know, it's, it's really impolite to make fun of it. I would personally, but not in print. Uh, and it was, yeah. it was interesting to see bands that were writing at the time of this starting, and they realized, what the hell could they write about now? How do you get into it? American metal bands had some real difficulties. Death, and that's one of the reasons why death metal is far more popular um, and straight-ahead black metal. There's not many pagan metal bands, folk metal bands in the United, who are from the United States. They could be immigrants or children of immigrants. I don't think you can go further back than that and, and claim to be, you know, that ethnic. Mm -hmm. So then there's an emulation in a way if they are creating music that is an emulation of what, uh, a black metal yeah. band may create somewhere else. Um, and is that a form, uh, does that fall into the wheelhouse of trivialization in some way? It, it could, but I remember when, you know, the, the Norwegian Viking metal, black metal, whatever you want to call it, became really big in the uh, first part of the 90s. And there were, bands from elsewhere also playing Viking metal. And I remember laughing about, ha, you know, from Chile, Viking metal. And I would look up the names, and they had Germanic names. Of You know, the, the real last names were Germanic. So they felt entitled to it. They may be, you know... You could be an American, but you are also, you know, your grandparents, your great-grandparents were, you know, from that area. And now it's a way of protecting, you know, partly what we see as white supremacism is using the cloak of ethnicity to spread their message because you don't make fun of people's ethnic group, but if their ethnic group is all white and that's what they're really about, you know, it, it, it makes it difficult. Mm -hmm. it, it allows them to pass. 
and then that makes me think of bands such as Behemoth who are from exactly. Poland, <laughs> right? And they're challenging the status quo of their ethnicity. And, exactly. and so it's, it's like this almost reversal of what you were just saying. <laughs> exactly. Yes, but politeness has never been big metal. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's precisely the same thing, uh, thinking of Iced Earth and their forays into uh, 1776. Oh, well. <laughs> and we don't need to go down the rabbit hole no. a ton, but it is there. Uh, I think that that band in some way... Um, is a is an interesting point because there are risks uh, for people when we use these uh, these things as uh, in the sort of like a flag waving. Wait a second. Mm-hmm. Let me argue something else. Um, yeah, the guy from Eister was an oath keeper and was one of the first ones arrested from the. Um, January 6th attack on the Senate. I I knew him and I knew his friends and we didn't talk politics. I I would assume from their other ideas that politically we did not agree on anything. But as longtime metalheads who liked this and saw this and had a, a whole history together. They were people that I interacted with. And and even worse, I'm going to say other terrible things. What people are in their real lives is not the way I, ju- the way I judge the music. I, I, that kind of authenticity is sort of off the table. Um, you know, I, I still think that Oh, Ted Nugent, for example, is the most horrendous, awful person as a human being. But a lot of the songs he did in the 70s, I still like. Mm-hmm. So that's my problem, okay? I just, I don't, dis- I make a big distinction between the art and the artist. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like where we're at right now when we're kind of talking about metal and pagan metal as almost a social yeah. movement. And so uh, I want to jump back to Behemoth with um, their challenge to the Catholic Church in Poland and their outright um, uh, yes, just denial yes. of the abortion uh, bans that have um, been passed there. Um, yeah, um, I noticed it before pagan metal ever raised its head. Um, that the most, I like death metal a great deal, and I like brutal death metal a lot. Um, and the most brutal death metal bands came from areas in which the Catholic Church was very strong, like Christian from Brazil, and the Polish death metal bands. Oof. Whereas, you know, Gothenburg death metal is melodic. There's no, the Catholic Church has, you know, no real sway over Sweden. <laughs> so, so you see the political use of, of metal to allow the venting. So the anti-Christian stuff 
is really, really strong. And one of the reasons, I, years ago, I was interested in speaking to bands, where were their most fervent audiences when they played live? Because they would tell me that this has always been a grand place to play. No, that, not so much. And I, I go, why? And then I was on CBC radio, and they were in, no, television, and they were interviewing me and asking me about um, metal in Canada. I said, and, and this was in the mid-90s. And I said, well, it's mainly, because not anymore, it's mainly in Quebec. Why? And they had on one of my favorite death metal guys from Quebec. He didn't know me from a hole in the wall, but I've seen his band many times, and I liked it. And he said, she's right, it is in, in Quebec, but I don't know why. So I said, well, people are more likely to be Catholic in Quebec than the rest of... <gasps> so part of the appeal, especially with the anti-Christian stuff in metal, is to people who were brought up in Christian homes in which their fathers would tell them, if you don't do this, you're going to just go to hell, and they that. Go, they go to church and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So even if they say they're not believers now, they had experience. So Bemis, he, you know, Polish metal is is really strong. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, let's uh, let's put a wrap on our conversation here, Dina. It's been uh, incredible having you with us. Do you have any uh, sort of parting thoughts for our audience? Um, yeah, you just wanted to get into the religious thing about paganism. So paganism was a religious term to mean people who don't believe in the right religion or my Christian religion. But paganism is has become, in the 19th century and today, neo-paganism became big in the 60s. It was oh, celebrating nature, and pagan metal groups celebrate nature, too. Paganism is um, what some people would call uh, spirituality. If you read, there was a best-selling book a couple of decades ago called The Da Vinci Code, which is all about a neo-pagan revolt against Catholicism. So the pagans hated the Catholic Church more than anything else. But we are living in a time in which, in the United States, most people have religiosity but don't belong to a church. They call themselves spiritual. And a lot of what they do could be classified as neo-pagan. That is a great full circle. I love it. <laughs> Dina, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was a pleasure to speak with such knowledgeable people, let me tell you. <laughs>